0: If you are a guest with us, welcome. Um, We're glad you're here. And uh, we know from God's word that it's no accident that you're here this morning, um, that His steadfast love, uh, His goodness, His sovereign hand has brought you here. And so we're very thankful for that. For the past several weeks, uh, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of Ezra, and, Nehemiah. and if you remember, this, is, this was one book originally. Uh, today we will be looking at the second half of chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3, I will begin in verse 8 and read through verse 13. And as I read, please keep in mind that these are... The words of the living God. Verse 8. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites... From 20 years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad, and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let me pray before we begin. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is through your word, uh, by your Holy Spirit, that you have saved each and every one of us in this room that knows you which means, Lord, that your word is powerful to save if attended by your spirit. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would today help me. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give uh, eyes and ears to everyone listening, that we would be able to see the steadfast love of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. And that those of us who don't know you in this room would turn and repent and put our trust in Christ. And those of us who know you would be greatly encouraged by the love that we see in this text. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I not working here? Okay. All right. Can you hear me okay? All right. A few kinks to work out this morning. We know uh, that the Bible, all 66 books, in both the Old and the New Testaments, contain the very words of God. And because of this, every part of God's word is eternally valuable and is also necessary for us to know him rightly. Therefore, any attempt to summarize God's word should be done carefully and with the understanding that it is in fact just a summary. It doesn't tell us the whole story. At the same time, God has, through his word, given us uh, an overarching narrative in scripture, one grand story from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And one of the ways that we could summarize this grand story is found in our text today in verse 11, which says, for he that is God, is good, and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Or as some other English translations say, his mercy or his loving kindness endures forever toward Israel. And what's truly remarkable about this summary statement is that the recipients of God's love here, Israel, are utterly undeserving of his love. From the very beginning in the garden, when through Adam, sin entered the world, the only thing that God's people have ever truly deserved was his righteous and just wrath for their rebellion against him. Not his steadfast love. And of course, the same thing could be said of us today. Consider your own life. Imagine if God turned it into a movie and he played it back for you to watch, and you had to sit through 10 or 20 or 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, possibly 80 years of your life. What would you see? I know what I would see. I would see selfishness, I would see greed, I would see anger murderous thoughts, sexual immorality, impurity, theft, evil desires, covetousness, all kinds of idolatry, and much, much more. But for those of us in this room that are in Christ today, we would also see something far greater, something far more glorious. We would see the steadfast love of the Lord we would see how over and over and over again he has preserved our lives and granted us the gift of faith and repentance that leads to salvation. This steadfast love of the Lord is really the great story of our lives and the great story of all of redemptive history. And it is the story that we will see today in the book of Ezra, chapter 3. A faithful God whose loving kindness expressed most clearly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, endures forever toward a faithless and undeserving people. Well, if you remember from last week, uh, I was not here, but I got a a brief update from Chris. In the first half of chapter 3, we are told that in the seventh month of the first year, after the return from Babylon, the exiles led by Zerubbabel, and Jeshua, the high priest, they come together as one man. With the fear of the peoples of the land upon them, they began to rebuild the altar and to offer burnt offerings according to the law of Moses. They observed the Feast of Booths and offered the daily burnt offerings, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon, and all the appointed feasts, and all of the freewill offerings as well. So, worship of God had been resumed, if you will, after the exile, but only in part because the foundation of the temple had not yet been laid. This meant that the abiding presence of God was still not with them in the same way as he had been. For example, at the end of Exodus, when we see the glory of the Lord in a cloud fill the tabernacle, or in the days of Solomon. When God's glory filled the temple. This absence of the temple also meant that the most significant event in Israel's calendar year, the Day of Atonement, which took place on the 10th day of the seventh month. If you remember last week at the beginning of the chapter, they were celebrating the Feast of Booze in the seventh month, but they were not able to celebrate the Day of Atonement because if there is no temple, there is no Holy of Holies. And there is no place for the high priest to go to offer sacrifices, to make atonement for the people. And if you know from Leviticus, God said about this day, this day of atonement, on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Now, we know from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, that the law was in fact A shadow of the good things to come it was not the real substance and that these sacrifices that were offered continually year after year after year could not perfect those who were drawing near but these exiles did not have the gift that we have in the book of Hebrews they only had the law of Moses and they only had the day of atonement and they could not celebrate this in the first day of the seventh month And so much in the same way that Solomon had done with the original temple, they begin making preparations for this second temple, giving money to the masons and the carpenters, food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to rebuild this temple. And this is where we pick up this morning in verse 8 of Ezra chapter 3. It's roughly seven months later, Remember, they were in the seventh month of the first year. Now, they're in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. In the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, all of them have come from captivity to Jerusalem to make a beginning, is the version that I have here. In other words, they came to begin the work on the foundation of the temple. And so right away here at the beginning, uh, this text points us back to the first temple. In 1 Kings 6.1, we know that Solomon, in the fourth year of his reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he had begun to build the house of the Lord. And so in the same way, these returned exiles are building the house in the second month. Now, just to clarify for some of you who might be inclined to think of all numbers and dates and so forth as having some sort of significance, I will just say that the second month according to the Hebrew calendar was the month of April and May. This was the time when the rainy season had ended and all of the good weather had begun and it was the perfect time to begin a building project. So there's nothing particularly sacred about the second month, Uh, they just realized that this was the time that that was best for them to build. Uh, But here in verse 8, this also indicates that Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua are still leading their kinsmen. The priests, the Levites, and the other exiles as they take this next step in the rebuilding process. And these two men are very important figures in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in fact, in the whole of scripture, uh, they are important figures. And they would have reminded the people, these two men, of God's goodness and his enduring loving kindness to them. So the mere presence of these men already points us to verse 11, that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. Now what do I mean by that? How did their presence show the steadfast love of the Lord? Well, Jeshua, we know he was the high priest, which meant that Israel still had a priestly representative to stand between them and God. They still had a mediator on their behalf. And we know from the beginning of the book of Ezra that it was God who had stirred up the hearts of all of these exiles. So God himself had made sure that Jeshua would come with these exiles and show these exiles that I have not forgotten you. There is a mediator here. He will be able to go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for you and the other Israelites. And we know that Zerubbabel, although he was not an official king, he was in the line of David. And his presence at the temple also would have reminded these Israelites of the covenant that God made with David when he said, I will make sure that your kingdom will be established forever. You will never lack a man on the throne. And so Zerubbabel and Jeshua were in a sense living proof of God's steadfast love and his goodness to the people of Israel. They, all they would have to do was look, and there they would see steadfast love of the Lord, the goodness of God, right here in the presence of these two men. Now, in the second half of verse 8 uh, through verse 10, just as they did in, at the beginning of chapter 3, these returned exiles, they are careful to do what is written in the law of Moses. First, they appoint Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the Lord. And this was, if you remember, what God had commanded Moses in Numbers chapter three, when He told Moses to bring the tribe of the Levites near. And there were three clans at the time: the Gershonites, the Merarites, and the Kohathites. And they had all been given specific responsibilities to carry out in service of the temple. At that time, in the book of Numbers, the ages of service was thirty to fifty. But later in Chronicles, First Chronicles chapter 23, David reduces the age from 30 to 20 for those who would be ministering at the temple because they no longer had to carry all of the articles uh, related to the tabernacle. So you work this out, but it seems like those who were 30 and over would have been stronger than those who were younger than 30. But I'll, I'll let you uh, work that out yourselves. Uh, After the foundation of the temple of the Lord, and so and so. After the foundation of the temple of the Lord is completed, uh, they, in accordance with the directions of King David, they come forward with trumpets and cymbals, the sons of Asaph to praise the Lord. So they appointed Levites in accordance with what David had told them. They come now with cymbals and trumpets, the sons of Asaph in the same way that David had instructed them earlier in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 25. So, like last week, and I, and I believe Chris referenced this, our text today reveals a serious concern on the part of the exiles, these returned exiles, to do things according to the law of the Lord. They were serious about it. The years of exile in Babylon were most definitely still fresh in their memories. And they were very aware that they had been sent into exile because of their sin. Because they had forsaken the covenant of, their, of the Lord, their God, and they had bowed down to other gods and served them. And they did not want to walk this same path of destruction again. This is why later on, we will see in the book, when Ezra discovers that the Israelites have sinned, By intermarrying with the pagan nations, he tears his clothing. He pulls hair from his head and his beard. Nehemiah also acts similarly when he discovers that Israel has sinned, except in his case, he actually rips out the hair of other people, curses them, and beats them. True pastor's heart right there. (laughs) So obviously, we would not want to imitate the, the, the violence that Nehemiah carried out against his people. But we see the zeal of Nehemiah. We see the zeal of Ezra. We see the zeal of these returned exiles. And, and this is instructive for us. And I know that Chris talked about this last week. But that is something that we can, we can learn from. That they were serious about obeying and following God's law. Now in verse 11 we come to what I said earlier could be the summary statement of this overarching narrative that we find to us presented in Scripture. Uh, This is the point in the text when they sing, just as King David sang when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem. They sing responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And then in verse 12 and 13, The people shouted with a great shout, but many, we are told here, of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, the old men who had seen the first temple of the Lord. They wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation being laid, but others shouted for joy, and it wasn't possible to distinguish the sound between the weeping and the rejoicing. And so the question here for us is, why were these men weeping? Why the disappointment? The temple foundation had been laid. So were these tears of joy? Were they rejoicing? Or were they still grieving over the loss of the previous temple? Now, if we we skip ahead to Ezra chapter 4, the very next chapter, we learn that the people of the land, that is, Uh, the people living at the time around the exiles, they discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. And they hired counselors against them to frustrate their plans all the days of Cyrus, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So in other words, shortly after the temple is laid, construction, or shortly after the foundation of the temple is laid, construction basically stops. Because of the opposition. And it stops for nearly 16 years. And instead of focusing on the temple, the people go back to their own houses and work on building their own houses and rebuilding their own lives. And they forget about the temple of the Lord. And this is when the prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah come into the story. And in the book of Haggai, in chapter 2, God commands the prophet Haggai to speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and to Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and to all the other exiles who have come back. And this is what he says to them in Haggai chapter 2. He says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So it is very likely that these old men here who had seen the first temple, Solomon's temple and all of its glory, they were weeping because they knew that this new second temple seemed like was, would be nothing in comparison with the glory of the first temple. And externally, this is true. It would not be the same. They did not have the manpower that Solomon had in his day. They did not have the wealth and the riches that Solomon had. In his day. And these older men, they recognized this. But they weren't just crying because of the lack of beauty or the lack of magnificence or the lack of glory of this second temple. They were weeping because of what it actually meant. And what it meant was that God's promises to restore Israel's fortunes were yet to be fulfilled. You see, if the second temple was inferior to the first, then how could post-exilic Israel ever attain its previous glory? It could not, at least in the immediate future. So this weeping was from the the reality that was before them, the disappointment that this post-exilic Israel would never attain to the glory of Solomon's day. Now in terms of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, this brief scene here that we see, this mixing of sadness and joy at the laying of the foundation of the temple is really somewhat of a foreshadowing for what we will see in the rest of of the book, the rest of Ezra and the rest of Nehemiah. In chapter 4 like I just mentioned, when they were faced with opposition Zerubbabel and Jeshua and all of these returned exiles ceased from the work and they, then later on, not too long after this, they begin to intermarry with the people of the lands, which God had expressly forbidden, not because it was a problem to marry people outside of Israel, but because marrying anyone outside of Israel meant marrying essentially an unbeliever, and it would lead their hearts astray. But again, they do the same thing later on in the book. And then at the very end of, or, and then in Nehemiah, Uh, chapter 5, towards the end, we see that the sin had become so serious that they begin to oppress one another, enslaving one another to pay off their debts and exacting interest, which God had expressly forbidden in the Levitical law. And I think that this serves as a warning to us. Uh, We know that much of what we read in the Old Testament serves as a warning to us in the New Covenant. They had just spent 50 years in exile because of their sins and God had finally shown them mercy and brought them home. There was a sense of hope. Um, There was a sense of joy. It was mixed with sadness, yes, but there was still hope. They had begun rebuilding and yet it only takes a short time for them to fall into sin and turn on one another. And we would be unwise to think that we are immune to the same type of sins. Uh, we would be foolish to think that it's not possible for us as a church to turn on one another. And so I think that when we read this, it should be very sobering to us that in these good times that God has given us, this, when we have a new building and when he's blessed us with so much growth, in these good times, we have to cultivate now a spirit of humility towards one another that is quick to overlook offenses when sinned against and quick to repent when we sin against someone else. And don't wait. Chris alluded to this this morning. Don't wait. Uh, Go to your brother or sister in Christ if if it is necessary. Repent quickly. Ask for forgiveness. Uh, The unity of our church is an evidence of God's steadfast love towards us. Uh, We don't want to act in a way that would bring shame on the name of Christ. And we cannot take our unity for granted. So let us be serious about this in the days ahead. Now, the fact that there is disappointment here in our text, and the fact that these exiles fall into sin once again, actually drives us back to verse 11. It brings us back to the heart of the text. It brings us back to the steadfast love of the Lord as the enduring foundation that holds out hope despite the sin, despite the unfaithfulness yet again of this community. And at the same time, this reality of God's steadfast love, the fact that it endures forever, the fact that it is infinite and eternal, because God is infinite and eternal, this points us forward. This pushes us forward to the day when God would fulfill his promises in the new covenant. And these former exiles, uh, presumably, at least the ones who truly understood God's covenant to Abraham, God's covenant to David, uh, the promises from Jeremiah that are all throughout, they would have also been looking forward to how God's love, his steadfast love, would endure forever. They would have been looking forward because they understood that it was an eternal love, and they understood that God would restore eventually the fortunes of Israel, but not in the way that they, many of them thought. For us, uh, on this side of the new covenant, we know that the steadfast love of the Lord is displayed most gloriously in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if we look closer at our text today, uh, this does become clearer. Much of what we see here in Ezra, 3, 8 through 13, points us forward to Christ. It doesn't leave us in the old covenant. It points us forward to Jesus. Zerubbabel, as I mentioned earlier, was in the line of David, and thus he was in the line of Christ. If you read Matthew, the genealogy in chapter 1, you'll see this. Jeshua, the name of the high priest, means he will save. And the positions of both of these men Zerubbabel as a type of king from the line of David, and Jeshua, the high priest, they point us forward to the roles or the offices that Christ, when he came, would assume. Christ is the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is the king of kings. And so the presence of Zerubbabel, the presence of Jeshua, point us forward to Jesus in this way. Something else that points us forward is the actual Hebrew word that is used here and is translated as steadfast love. Uh, You may be familiar with this word. It is the word hesed, and it essentially means the loving kindness of God in condescending to the needs of his creatures, and that's the key word. It's the loving kindness of God in condescending to those who could not go up to Christ. He had to come down to us. He does this by redeeming us from enemies and troubles, by preserving life, by redeeming from sin, by keeping His covenants. All of these are examples of God's hesed, His steadfast love, His loving kindness. And in the New Testament, the equivalent to this word hesed is the Greek word eleos. And if the, if you're familiar with the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, this is the word that they use to translate steadfast love, eleos. Now what is interesting about this word in the New Testament is that it essentially narrows down the definition of God's loving kindness and steadfast love to the mercy that God shows sinners, especially the mercy that he shows in providing and offering to men salvation through Jesus Christ. And that is no accident. God doesn't do accidents. He doesn't do random. So in other words, we have a broader definition of the steadfast love of the Lord in the Old Testament, hesed. And we have a narrower definition of this same word in the New Testament, mercy or eleos, because of the person of Jesus Christ. And one of the first examples that we encounter in the New Testament of this occurs in the gospel of Luke, uh, just as the new covenant is dawning. And that again is no accident. It is the transition from the old to the new. If you remember in Luke chapter 1, Mary, pregnant with Jesus, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who at that time is pregnant with John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 1, Mary breaks out in song when she sees Elizabeth. We call this the Magnificat, And then just a few verses later, Zechariah begins to prophesy. And if you pay attention to the the language that Mary uses and the language that uh, Zechariah uses, you will see this word, mercy, this eleos, this steadfast love of the Lord, appear. First, Mary says of God, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. As He spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David to show the mercy promised to our fathers. That's the steadfast love that was promised to their fathers. And so this steadfast love of the Lord that we see in the book of Ezra, in the Old Testament, always had been pointing forward. Yes, it included the immediate context, but it had always been pointing forward to this moment when Christ would come, the incarnate Lord, into the world to save us. This is the mercy of Christ, the eleos of Christ that we have been given. Amen. Both Paul and Peter also employ this word on several occasions when speaking of the salvation of Christ. In the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, we, we read that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy through Jesus Christ our Savior. And 1 Peter 1 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, that steadfast love, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Furthermore, if we go back to our text, the focus on the temple points us forward to Christ. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. You're probably very familiar with this, says that the word that is Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. And dwell, you probably know, literally means to become like a tabernacle, become like a tent, which points us forward to the temple because the temple replaced the tabernacle. And in Christ, as the tabernacle of God, if you will, we have seen his glory, John says, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus himself, in John chapter 2, verse 19, says to the Jews, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But John tells us that he was speaking about the temple of his body. And as the Bible draws to a close in the book of Revelation, John begins his last paragraph saying, in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, that is the city of Jerusalem, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, God's plan for rebuilding this second temple was ultimately to tear it down through Christ. The earthly temple and the entire sacrificial system were, as Hebrews tells us, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, not the true form. But when Christ appeared, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption for us and taking up residence within us, through his Holy Spirit, thus transforming our lowly bodies into the temple of the Lord. Church, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, deserving immediate death, God showed steadfast love to them, sacrificing an animal in their place, and clothing their shame. In the days of Noah, when the wickedness of man was great in the earth, God showed steadfast love to Noah and his family, bringing them safely through the flood. When Abraham was worshiping idols in Ur of the Chaldeans, God called him out according to his steadfast love, and he covenanted with Abraham, swearing by himself, since he had no one greater to swear by. When Joseph was unjustly thrown into prison, the Lord showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. When Israel stood pinned between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, and they cried out, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. God rescued them, and Moses declared in song, you have led your." You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And when a short time later, Israel committed the gravest of sins, literally fashioning an idol, as God was giving the commandments to Moses, the Lord does not forsake them. He places Moses in the cleft of a rock, And he passes before Moses in Exodus chapter 34 saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord, because of his steadfast love, continued to lead the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years, sending manna from heaven without fail, day after day after day. And even the sandals on their feet did not wear out after 40 years. The Lord brought down the walls of Jericho with the sound of trumpets and a shout, leading his people into the promised land. And when they went and whored after other gods and committed great sin... In his steadfast love, he sent judges to rescue them over and over and over again, despite the fact that they were only doing what was right in their own eyes. God, in his steadfast love, preserved David's life from the hand of Saul many times. He established him king over Israel, and he covenanted with him to establish the throne of David forever. Knowing that David would steal another man's wife and then pile sin upon sin as he lied and he murdered to cover up his own wickedness. And God, according to his steadfast love, he sent prophet after prophet to his idolatrous people, warning them of impending judgment. But he promised them if they would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then he would hear from heaven and he would forgive their sin, and he would heal their land. Now, we know that God eventually did this, at least to a degree, and he eventually did this completely in Christ, and he will come back again one day and finish the job. We know that. But when he did this in the book of Ezra, he stirred up the heart of Cyrus, and he brought his people back from exile in fulfillment of his promise, showing steadfast love to his people. And what about you? What about us? Well, we know that you, us, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, there's that word again, the steadfast love of the Lord, the eleos of God, the mercy of God. God being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So where does this leave us, all of this that we know about the steadfast love of the Lord? Uh, For those of you in this room who are outside of Christ, who have not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, This steadfast love of the Lord, this mercy of God is not yours. It does not belong to you if you have not turned and put your trust in Christ. And you cannot, and God does not pretend that it belongs to you. He does not say, come to me however you like, and I will give you steadfast love, and I will give you mercy. He says, only through Christ and Christ alone will you receive mercy and my steadfast love. If you have not turned from your sins, you remain under God's just and righteous wrath. I said earlier, imagine if you were to take your entire life and put it on a screen and watch as the years went by. What would you see? I am 100% sure that you would see someone who needs to be forgiven of their sins. And this will only happen in Christ. But I hope if you are not in Christ... I hope what you have seen today is that this God is rich in mercy and he offers it freely to those who would come to him, freely to those who would turn and repent. And so while today remains today, while salvation is still possible, I would urge you to turn and put your faith in Christ. Young children, older young adults, adults in this room, any of you who have not trusted in Christ Put your faith in Christ. His steadfast love, He holds it out to you. All you have to do is repent and turn to Him. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, who have received this steadfast love, who now walk in this newness of life, in this mercy that God has given us, I would encourage you this week to take time to reflect on the steadfast love of the Lord. Each day as you open the Word, As you sit down to pray, reflect on the steadfast love of the Lord. Um, Consider his steadfast love from the very beginning of your life all the way until today. And I would encourage you also to pray. Pray that God would help you to understand his steadfast love. In the book of Ephesians, you're probably familiar with this prayer, but Paul says in Ephesians 3, he prays, that they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now what Paul is saying here and what he understood and I think what all of us understand is that the knowledge of the steadfast love of the Lord, understanding, comprehending this, is beyond us. It surpasses knowledge. It surpasses our limited knowledge. And so we must cry out. We must plead with the Lord to show us his steadfast love and give us understanding of his steadfast love. So I would encourage you to do that this week. And I would also exhort you to ask God to give you opportunities and the courage to share this message with the lost around you. We have the message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of Christ. He has entrusted this great message to us. He has not given us his steadfast love so that we could sit on it and we could keep it to ourselves. He's given us his steadfast love so that we would take this great news and we would proclaim it to those around us. So pray this week that people around you, you would have opportunities with people around you and pray that God would give you boldness and pray that he would give you courage and pray that he would give you clarity to communicate this great message. Finally, be resolved again through prayer that you would never dishonor such a God as we have, who through his loving kindness has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, One of my, my favorite biography is of a man named John Payton. Uh, He was a Scottish man in the 1800s. He went to the New Hebrides Islands, which are in the South Pacific, just northeast of Australia. And there he worked among a cannibalistic people who a few years earlier had beaten and clubbed to death other men who had attempted to do the same thing. And John Payton talks about his father a lot in this story. And this was one of the most encouraging things that I've ever read about fatherhood, was just to see his father uh, in, this, in his life and the impact that he had, the influence that his father had. He describes his father as daily going into this small closet that he called it. It was more like, uh, I guess it would be a, a room in between the, the two rooms of the house, and he would pray. And the children knew at that moment that it was a sacred moment, and they weren't to talk, and they weren't to act up because their father was praying to the Lord. And this was Peyton's life growing up. And later, when he was a young man, around 18, 19 or so, he went off to school, and it was 40 miles from where he lived. And he had to walk those 40 miles. And his father went with him and walked with him for the first six miles. And Peyton describes this scene he says that him and his father, they walked along in almost unbroken silence, and he would turn occasionally to look at his father and see his lips moving in constant prayer for his son. And they finally got to the point where his father was going to say goodbye to John Payton and depart and return home, and they couldn't even speak to one another because of the emotion of the moment. Peyton said tears began to flow from his eyes, and he ran from his father in that moment, and he Hid behind uh, a, a small hill of, of some sorts, and he waited there until he could compose himself. Um, but as he was there, he snuck up slowly to look above the hill, and there you could see his father looking out for him, waiting for him as he walked on. And after this story, after this, this scene or this uh, situation that Peyton had experienced, he, he wrote later, maybe 30 or 40 years later, he was writing this. He said it was vivid in his memory, even in that day. And he said that when that happened to him, that he vowed in his heart never to do anything that would dishonor such a father as he had. And that was what he did in his entire life. He always remembered that. He never forgot it. Now you think of how great that father sounds, and then you compare that father with our heavenly father. And there is absolutely no comparison. If John Payton could say, I vow in my heart to never do anything to dishonor such a father as I had, may we be the same type of people who would say we never would do anything to dishonor such a father as we have in heaven, who has given us his son at the highest cost to himself for our salvation, that we might experience eternity with Christ, with our heavenly father forever. Let's pray. Father, we cannot comprehend your steadfast love to us. It is a love that surpasses knowledge. And so I pray that you would help us, all of us in this room, through your Holy Spirit to comprehend this great love. And Lord, that we would take this message of reconciliation, this message of steadfast love, and we would be zealous Uh, to proclaim it to those around us. And Lord, I pray that through your spirit, you would strengthen us, that we would never do anything to dishonor such a father as we have. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for uh, how it speaks to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the temple and we no longer have to go through the sacrifices of the old temple system. Lord, may... You be glorified uh, through Christ in our lives today and this week. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.